listening to The Art of the Matter, a new discussion programme focusing on all subjects related to the University of Cambridge and the arts. In this, our debut programme, we'll present to you a lecture on the life and times of Jules Holland and some film reviews courtesy of Richard Dawkins. But first, many people argue that the University of Cambridge has become stagnant in its choice of subjects. We all know you can come to Cambridge to study English literature. We all know you can come here to study maths. What will drag this university kicking and screaming into the 21st century is the creation of new subjects, subjects which can attract media attention and publicity. Earlier this week, I went to a London pub to meet up with Brett Carter, the creator of just such a subject, Cockney Education. I asked him to tell me all about it. Well, essentially, I'm here today to talk to you about a new subject which I'm promoting within the University of Cambridge, um, which is Cockney Education, or Cockhead for short. Um, and it's the study of the Cockney language, culture and peoples. It's an interdisciplinary subject with links to anthropology. Okay, I'm going to stop yeah. you here. Many people would argue Cockneys don't have a valid role to play in society. They're, they're on the margins, shall we put it. Why do you think they're so important? Well, anthropologists spend long periods of time, you know, kind of studying apes and our descendants. Now, scientific research recently has proven that the average Cockney is at least twice as intelligent as an ape. So why is it that they are so understudied. I mean, they're, they're so maligned throughout history, it's terrible. And yet, if one walks down everyday street in Neasden, one sees the Cockney everywhere. The Cockney is our dustman, our chimney sweep, our shoe black, the barrow boy we pass in the street, the homeless man we spit at. Cockney culture permeates Western civilization on every level. It's crucial that we learn to kind of, well, I mean, to, to, to understand better this misunderstood okay. linguistic group. Okay. This conversation is becoming too abstract for my liking. We are in need of some hard Cockney facts. What exactly is Cockette? What are the principal modules one must study? Well, essentially, Cockney, I mean, it's divided into three modules in the first year, and then beyond that, there's specialisms of sorts. Um, the first module is Cocklet, which is um, you know, it's the literature, the, the, the Cockney literary corpus, as it were, um, which consists of Dickens... Dickens. Well, essentially, most Cockneys are literate, so it's, it's quite a short module. And the second part, then, would be Cocklang, which is taken orally, where students are sent to live in Putney for a month. They live with native Cockneys, um, they begin to learn a little of the language, and they also go about everyday Cockney chores, such as walking to the pump for water or stealing coal. This module is essentially examined orally at the end of the term, and um, the quality of the Cockney language and its purity is assessed. Finally, we have Cock History, which is the study of famous Cockneys, essentially biographical in nature, although larger movements within the Cockney sphere are examined. Um, one example is I mean, various Cockneys are studied, for example, Oliver Twist, Dick Van Dyke, um, Bob Hoskins, the Cray Twins, you know, I could go on. I see, yes, I see what you mean. Now, here is a question which I feel Cockney education as a subject must answer. Cockneys and received pronunciation speakers seem crucially separate in our land. What can we do to unite these two disparate societies? Well, it's a very difficult question. I mean, integration at the moment is um, is very much a problem, and, and that's really plaguing Britain. Uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time at the moment talking to community leaders 
uh, Cockney community leaders, for example, I've visited prisons, you know, um, rest homes, all that. And um, es essentially, we, we today have a very effective scheme where, where, um, um, where Cockney children at birth are fostered in received pronunciation homes, which is a much more humane way of dealing with this problem from the, the previous system of forcible sterilisation in the 1920s. Yes, I'm starting... Do you know... I'm starting to see where you're coming from. There is a wealth of potentially interesting material in the study of Cockneys. But for one second, let's forget Cockhead the subject. Let's talk about Cockhead the man. I want to know about you, about your personal interests, your personal voyage with the Cockneys. Well, I've essentially spent 20 years trying to understand the Cockney mentality in all its glory. Um, the University of Cambridge has funded various expeditions to Neeston, which I've done over the years. And um, essentially, these trips have they, they provided the inspiration for the seminal text of Cockhead, which is entitled "Everything You Wanted to Know About the Cockneys But Were Too Afraid to Ask About from Fear of Being Stabbed," and it's in, it's in its fourth edition at the moment. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm very much a leader in the field um, of yes, Cockney studies. Yes, you are a real expert. Oh, thank you. So, perhaps I should take advantage of this opportunity to ask you the big question. Who do you believe to be the greatest Cockney who has ever lived? Well, there's, there's various Cockneys vying for that point, but I feel that really, for his impact on the Cockney world stage, Michael Caine is um, very much... My choice, I feel. I'm currently writing a paper for the International Cockney Congress in Vienna on Cain's use of the word bloody in the Italian job. Yes, now, there's an interesting anecdote here, isn't there, about, about that performance. Please, go on. Yes, well, essentially, the role of Charlie Croker, the, um, the, 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 the kind of young playboy protagonist of the Italian job, was originally offered to a young Hugh Laurie. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, as you can imagine, it would have been... Uh, very much a different film. I mean, fortunately, last minute he had to pull out due to a gammy leg. But um, essentially, our, our perception of Cockney today would have been radically altered if if a Toff had done it instead of, you know, um, an, aver an average Cockney. Yes, I see. Here is my problem with Cockhead. It seems so retrospective, so focused on the past. How do Cockneys currently influence the non-Cockney sectors of Britain? What do they still have to give? I feel the Cockneys take very much more than they give, as I found out on many of my ethnographies. I mean, at the moment, um, the, 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 the Cockney Congress is applying for EU support as a minority language within the European Union. There's an excellent translation program going on at the moment. It's very much like the, um, the, the, the Welsh Assembly, in which, um, for example, medical advice on stab wounds and alcoholism has been translated into Cockney. And on a more political level, we're hoping for an East End Assembly in the next 20 years. I mean, I feel the Cockney people may finally have a say in politics after centuries of terrible discrimination and abuse from received pronunciation speakers. Do you know, I think you've won me over. I think you've shown me what it is that you can do with Cockney... Oh, hold, hold on, um, I, I can sense you're, you're kind of wrapping up here, so I'd like this point to very quickly plug my new book, Beneath the Barrow, Exploring Cockney Sexuality, published by Bloomsbury. Brett Carter, we here at The Art of the Matter fully endorse Cockney education. We hope it becomes part of the syllabus soon. Cheers, Governor. What a fantastic interview that was. He walked into that pub with soot in his hair and a whistle on his lips and blew us all away. We actually received our first email while the piece was playing out. It reads, Dear Art of the Matter, 
I was much offended by your last piece of so-called journalism. Many Cockneys are intelligent and well-informed. They possess skills and abilities which benefit the rest of the nation. We cannot afford to take Cockney communities as lightly as you seem to. And uh, that message comes from Mary MacDonald in the Addenbrooke's Mental Hospital. You're listening to The Art of the Matter. Next up, a lecture, given by my good self, entitled The Life and Times of Jules Holland. It tells the story of one of our greatest piano players and his love affair with Boogie Woogie. This is the story of one man and one genre which would take over the entire world. Now we're looking. In the town of Blackheath, London, on the 24th of January 1958, a beautiful bouncing baby boy was born. His name was Julian Miles Holland, and this is his story. Mr and Mrs Holland were delighted with the latest member of their family, but it soon became clear that this was a deeply troubled young man. At the age of three, Jules was diagnosed with busy hand syndrome, a now infamous affliction which leads to dangerous reflex actions from the elbows down. This terrible illness soon began to bear an ominous fruit. By age four, Jules was smashing windows and hitting his younger brothers and sisters, and by age eight he had moved on to ferocious acts of physical bullying and self-harm. It was clear that this young man was going off the rails, but luckily the power of music was on hand to intervene. One day, Jules had been kept behind by a teacher for attempting to throw another child's school bag out of a second-story window. As he was waiting to receive a brisk strike of the cane, he heard the sound of music echoing throughout the school. But what music! It was angelic! It was heavenly! Jules had no choice but to follow the sound directly to the source. He walked out of the door of the classroom, down a corridor, and entered the music block. There he found a year 11 student by himself sitting at the piano. But what a sound he was creating. His index fingers were jumbling, his pinkies were tumbling, his wrists were rumbling. Jules dashed over to the piano, looked the boy square in the face and said, What's that? The boy stopped his tune for one second, turned, looked Jules square in the eye and said, This is Boogie Woogie Piano. Jules was hooked. The very next day, he dropped out of school and began hanging around outside the local boogie-woogie clubs, cap in hand, begging for a job. He was there night through day, summer through winter. He didn't care that he was hungry. He didn't care that it was cold. He didn't care that he hadn't seen his mother in over four months. He knew that if he sat outside those clubs, beating a primal boogie-woogie rhythm on the pavement, he would be recognised. Eventually, it worked, and Jules was given his first headline gig. It was a huge success. The accolades rang in from around the blues community, and it was clear that the latest boogie-woogie hero had arrived. Unfortunately, not everyone in this tale can be a hero. 
and it is now my duty to introduce to you two extremely dastardly minor characters. Not everyone who attended Jules's premiere performance was able to appreciate the phenomenal Boogie Woogie on offer. There were two pop musicians present as well. Their names were Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook, and they realised that if they could harness and redirect the supernatural boogie-woogie ability on display, they could become international pop superstars overnight. As Jules's performance tinkled to an epic climax, they formed a plan. They would approach the mercurial young musician and trick him into joining their band, a hideous pop outfit by the name of Squeeze. After the show, they approached Jules, claiming to be two young, boogie-woogie enthusiasts aiming to take their beloved genre to the masses. They claimed it was their plan to achieve one truly global pop hit, then use the newfound media attention as a platform to take boogie-woogie global. Our naive young hero was tricked, and he joined the band for minimum wage, full-time. The first hit, 1978's Cool for Cats, arrived. Jules was ecstatic. He had earned the chance to broadcast the boogie-woogie rhythms which swirled within his heart to the nation. But Difford and Tilbrook claimed another pop hit was necessary. Then another. Then another. Finally, Jules realised he had walked into the most intolerable prison of all, a major pop franchise. The band had no interest in boogie-woogie. Take this example, 1980's number one hit, Up the Junction, a disgusting example of a hummable tune and enjoyable lyrics. could not bear to be a part of such a mindless, simplistic, uplifting pop band. He was forced to play first television shows, then theatres, and finally stadiums, without ever unleashing one of his beloved boogie-woogie riffs. Our hero was at his lowest, and one night he attempted suicide by slamming his head inside a grand piano. The next day, he was forced out of the band. He was forced to whore himself to the man, presenting television pop show The Tube in 1988. But the busy hand syndrome, which he thought he had conquered as a child, returned. He was a disastrous presenter, smashing cameras, hitting co-host Paula Yates round the face, and constantly bullying the guest bands. But like all bullies, he was only expressing his own pain. One night, he found himself, alone, drunk, at the top of Tower Records, ready to jump. But then, he had a vision. He, 
could start his own rhythm and blues band. An 18-piece boogie-woogie orchestra! He could play his own music, be his own leader. The news flew up and down the country. The golden boy of Boogie Woogie was back and looking for musicians. Hundreds of brass players stood up and said, Yes, yes, I shall be counted. Jules handpicked the best 18 and the world's greatest Boogie Woogie collective was born. Jules Holland and his rhythm and blues orchestra. The Rhythm and Blues Orchestra toured the nation, playing boogie-woogie non-stop. Sometimes a saxophonist here, a trumpeter here, would suggest they try a different genre of music. The odd blues number here, the odd jazz track there, but the motion would never be passed. They played boogie-woogie in car parks, shopping centres and airports. They played it in bars, they played it in clubs, they played it in restaurants, they played it in pubs. They played boogie-woogie morning, noon and night. They played boogie-woogie Monday through Sunday, 24-7, 365 days a year. Did the public ever get sick of their incessant boogie-woogie stylings? Of course not, because they had realised, like Jules, like myself, like you have realised, dear listener, that boogie-woogie is the only style of music which matters, the only music which can give our worthless lives some meaning. Jules was on top of his game. He had made his beloved boogie-woogie the most popular genre of music in the world. But why stop there? Certainly, Jules was playing boogie-woogie. His band was playing boogie-woogie. But there remained some musicians in the world who were not. And Jules knew that this situation needed correcting. Jules had another fantastic idea. If he created his own television show, he could lure unsuspecting musicians to perform on it, then stealthily add boogie-woogie piano parts to their art. Later with Jules, Holland was born. And from that date on, every piece of music which has been performed on the show, from the indie of the Arctic Monkeys to the drum and bass of Pendulum and the luscious French folk of Carla Bruni, has contained a covert boogie-woogie piano line. Jules will not rest until the work of all these talented musicians has been filtered, edited, cut down to form a boogie-woogie masterpiece. The man is on a mission. He will not rest until it is a federal crime to record a track without boogie-woogie piano and persistent offenders can be thrown in jail for up to ten years. I'm looking at you, Billy Bragg. Who knows what Jules will add boogie-woogie piano to next? We all love Schindler's List, but hasn't it become slightly boring without a honky-tonk riff? And Prime Minister's Question Time is just plain dull without a boogie-woogie backbeat. 
He could add Boogie Woogie Piano to household objects. A sandwich, a toilet, a drain. It need never end. Every place of work, every pub, bar and club will pump out Jules Holland's Boogie Woogie 24-7 and the man himself will sit on a piano throne, hitting blues riffs, being showered with gifts and treated as a Boogie Woogie God. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, boogies of all ages, the future's bright, the future's Holland. What a fantastic lecture that was. I'm sure I've opened all of your eyes. I'm now joined in the studio by Professor Richard Dawkins, who's going to review some movies. What are you going to do this week, Richard? Well, I was going to do The Gold Rush by Charlie Chaplin. The Gold Rush? Not sure that's modern enough, Richard. Not modern enough. Um, how about um, The Great Dictator? That's a later Charlie Chaplin movie. Yes. Can't you do something that, you know, people can go out and see right now, Dickie? Mm, well, I, I, I have seen Quantum of Solace. Even that was released, what, three months ago? Can't we do something a bit less old? Nonsense. What do you mean it's old? You clearly have no concept of old. Quantum of Solace is new. The universe is 10 billion years old and we've had over 35,000 years of human development. So I say Quantum of Solace is clearly new. Actually, you know what? Quantum of Solace was released on DVD this week anyway, so fine, we can do that. Right. Uh, I've heard that the plot of Quantum of Solace is very much dependent on having seen Casino Royale. Is that true? Yes, yes, I believe that is true. The existence of quantum is dictated by that which came before it. So we can see the evolutionary path between the two. I mean, I love Casino Royale. It's so naturalistic and so real. I mean, the plots move onwards in a steady progressive path. No intelligent design, no clever watchmaker, just good evolutionary fun. I mean, watching it made me drool with excitement for Quantum of Solace. Much like a Pavlovian dog, another well-known evolutionary response. Excellent. So, what did you think of the title, Richard? That's the main question surrounding the movie. That title, Quantum of Solace. Very disappointing, I'm afraid. I see quantum in the title. As a scientist, I expect quantum in the plot. Where are the leptons? Very little meson activity. No electrons, no strange quarks, no ups, no downs, no charm quarks. In fact, very little quark activity at all. OK, that's interesting. And what do you think of the film itself? Science is, as you know, everything. So we shall use the empirical method to see if we like the film. Firstly, we need a hypothesis. And the hypothesis is thus. Quantum of Solace is absolutely terrible. I will explore this hypothesis around three separate observations. My first observation is the absurd, unbelievable plot. There's no logical progression to the plot. One could even say the design behind it is not very intelligent. The villain, for example, is terrible. There's no evolution of the classic tradition from Bond Beddies. A middle management figure attempting to pilfer water from a second world country? That's not evil at all, just simple economics. However, he is clearly a godless maniac, and as such I rather grew to like him. My second observation is the scientifically insulting action sequences. Humans have evolved to bleed, and our bones have evolved to break, and Bond does neither. The film's director is clearly asking us to be so open-minded our brains will fall out. For example, in one terrible scene, Bond falls over 700 metres before opening his parachute a mere 10 metres above the ground. Through well-known Suvat equations of movement, we can calculate that Bond will be travelling at over 60 miles an hour. He would hit the ground hard. He would die. I may go on about the God delusion, but this really is the Bond delusion. Zing! My third observation, the dialogue. 
It's so pathetic and slow that it might have been written by Christopher Hitchens, that illiterate simpleton. We've had 35,000 years of evolution, and we should be able to do much better than this. So, my conclusions from my hypothesis, influenced by observation using the empirical method, is thus. Don't go out and see Quantum of Solace. Ever. It stinks. It was clearly put together by a blind watchmaker, and watching it felt like climbing Mount Improbable. Wow, that's a pretty resounding thumbs down for Quantum of Solace then. How many stars are you going to give it, Dickie? Mm, I have to say I reject the term stars, as it has major religious connotations. I prefer the term nuclear fusion reactors in the sky. Okay, and how many? I would give it um, five nuclear fusion reactors in the sky. Five? That seems pretty high. What's that out of? Billions, you fool! There are billions of stars in the sky, so as you can see, I gave the film an insultingly small percentage. Right, well, I think you get the message, listeners. Do not go out and buy the DVD of Quantum of Solace. Seen any other good DVDs, Richard? Yes, I saw The Golden Compass. Ah, now I'm sure you would have liked that, right? I mean, it's right up your alley, being such an atheist. Yes, I was extremely excited. I heard it was one of the great atheist polemics of our time, and I sat down in front of the TV, ready to be shown the innate evils of religion and faith, though I'm sure I know them all already. Instead, I just got a bunch of polar bears hitting each other with swords. But seeing as they haven't evolved opposable thumbs yet, to my knowledge, how are they holding the swords? And for the record, it is clearly not a compass, but a thermometer, and everybody knows that such shoddy infantry would simply ruin any experiment. Well, not a good week for movies then. Thanks for coming in, Dickie. A pleasure. And thanks for listening to The Art of the Matter, everybody. See you next week, where I'll be uncovering some unpleasant truths about life inside Cambridge drinking societies. Goodbye. (laughs) 